Welcome to Arbor Bridge Church's weekly podcast with your teacher, Daryl Canty. Arbor Bridge Church exists to bridge the gospel and our community by connecting people to Jesus and each other. Visit us online at arborbridgechurch.com. All right, there we go. I think we're good. It's good to, good to be with you guys and to, to worship together this morning. Uh, grateful uh, for your pastor. Uh, Daryl has been a real blessing to me and, and to our church, and uh, I've had a chance to, to meet many of you. Uh, we were able to celebrate Good Friday together, um, and uh, just in the, in the ebb and flow of, of life, um, I had the opportunity to interact, and so thankful for what God's doing here. Uh, one, of the, one of the joys I've had over this, uh, this year in particular has been having lunch with uh, Daryl and uh, the pastors of Hope uh, Church who meet here as well and just getting to know one another, encouraging one another uh, in Christ and in the work that God's called us to do and, and so thankful uh, for that. But uh, today we're going to be in Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 15, Titus 2, 11 through 15. <clears throat> uh, before, before I moved to Ann Arbor, I was a uh, student pastor uh, of a church in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. And so, uh, Trinity, as we celebrate uh, your graduation, uh, it's just a, uh, I know it's an exciting time of life and um, so many things ahead of you and uh, encouraged for what God has in store. I tell all the graduates uh, at our student ministry, don't forget God's word and God's people. And those two things uh, will be what uh, give you a foundation and a security uh, in the future. And so, um, so today we have just that, God's Word uh, and God's people. Uh, but uh, before we read from Titus chapter 2, I, I have a, a question for you. I'm curious if you've ever heard this question. Why? You ever, you ever got the why question? Uh, maybe some of you have little ones here, uh, or you remember when you had little ones. Uh, go clean your room. Why? Can I watch a show? No. Why? Uh, you know, all, all, the, all the things that, uh, <clears throat> that we think back on childhood, there's always those things that just didn't make sense to us. We, we incessantly ask the question, why? Maybe you're tired of hearing the question, uh, why? Uh, it's, a, it's a natural question. One, as parents, sometimes we get a little put off by when our kids don't just accept uh, what we've told them. Um, but as I've grown older, I've realized uh, that I find myself asking the question, why, quite a bit. Uh, and, and so just the other day I was at Target and, uh, you know, they have the pickup thing and I, you know, usually I pull into the spot and I say, I'm coming. And then I immediately say, and I'm here. Uh, and they, they apparently have a, a measuring system of how quick they get it out to your car. And so uh, the person who brought out uh, my groceries said to me, you know, next time, if you could tell us that you're coming a little bit sooner than when you get here. Um, and, and I thought to myself, it took you like one minute to get out here. I'm curious, like, why? <laughs> why, why does that matter? You know, and she went on to explain it to me and uh, made more sense. And I'll, I'll do my best. So if you, if you are going to Target, make sure to tell them that you're on the way before you actually pull into the spot. Um, <clears throat> but the question why is really important because it, it gives us the, 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 the foundation for the things that we do. It gives us a reason for what we do. It gives us an explanation of, of, of why we're doing something and how we're doing it. And uh, in the book of Titus, and really all throughout the New Testament, we see this common theme that uh, if you're an English person, you'll, you'll perhaps appreciate this, that the imperatives of God's Word are grounded in the indicatives of God's Word. In other words, what we're supposed to do, what we're called to do, is grounded in what God has said is true, what God has accomplished on our behalf. And so Titus 2, 11 through 15 is the why, really, for chapter 2. 
Uh, as Pastor Dell has been going through chapter 2, looking at the different roles of older men and older women and younger women and younger men, I'd like to say in Titus 2, 1 through 10, what we have is really a picture, a vision of a culture of discipleship in the local church. A culture of discipleship and where it's, it's not unusual for an older woman to spend time with a younger woman and encourage her in her faith and for a younger woman to be able to encourage an older woman in her faith, for older men to pour into younger men, for younger men to aspire to godliness and, and loving Christ and loving others and, and that in all stages of life as well as in all stations of life as he approaches um, all the different aspects of our life, it's a, it's a vision to living our life with God at the center uh, so that the, the gospel might be adorned, is what it says in chapter 10, so that everything that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So it's a, a vision of discipleship. And the question is, when you look at Titus 2, 1 through 10, uh, you know, we, we see uh, the, the character that's supposed to be befitting of God's people. Uh, discipleship is about God uh, forming us to be more and more like Christ in the image of Christ and this call to being sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sounded faith, and, and, and on and on it goes as, he, uh, as Paul addresses the, the character that's to be true of God's people. The question is why? Why give ourselves uh, to that kind of work? Uh, why, why constrain ourselves to, to living self-controlled lives rather than living self-expressive Lives. Why, why give ourselves to growing in godliness when, when, frankly, it's easier to drift towards ungodliness? Why give ourselves as older men and, and older women to investing in the next generation? Why humble yourselves, younger men and younger women, to heeding the wisdom of godly men and women? Why, why do all that? Well, the answer is in verses 11 through 15, and in short, I think the answer is the gospel the gospel that is the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. Verses 11 through 15 give us the why for verses 1 through 10. Or to put it another way, a culture of discipleship in the local church requires God's people be clear on the gospel. So verses 11 through 15 unpack for us the gospel. I want us to see three things as we walk through it. And the first is, is really a summary of what the gospel is. Uh, the gospel is about the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. The gospel is about the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. Read with me, if you will, from Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. Titus 2, 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You see, the book of Titus, as I'm sure you guys have, have got this context uh, and, and going through this book somewhat already, is really a book written uh, to, uh, uh, to a new church, or really a set of new churches that Paul and Titus had 
uh, planted, they went to, to the island of Crete, and there they shared the gospel. Uh, and the island of Crete was filled with some rough folks. Um, uh, in, in verses in chapter 2, it talks about the, the character uh, that was, uh, was kind of commonplace on Crete, uh, a place where, where lying and, uh, and, and pleasure and, uh, and indulgence was common. Uh, and there they came and they shared the gospel, this gospel that's found in Jesus Christ, the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. And you know what happens when, when the gospel is preached, God works in such a way that people are changed and some people became Christians and those Christians were then formed into churches. And in those churches, Paul left Titus to put pastors in place so that those churches could, could grow and be sound in doctrine and in godly living. And he's instructing Titus on what to do as he's left him in Crete to, to establish these churches. And so we're a church plant. We, we decided that it would be a great time to start a church in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, and so uh, we, we've been navigating uh, life over this past year, as you guys have as well. And uh, one of the things that we did as we kicked off the new year was we came to the book of Titus out of a desire for what does God's word have to say to, to young churches? And, and really, Titus, though written to, uh, to Titus as he establishes these new churches, it's a word fit for every church, no matter its season. Uh, and, uh, and as we looked at it, we said, what do we need to hear uh, to be faithful in our calling as God's people and as the church? And it's a, it's a calling uh, to, to be sound in doctrine, a calling to be committed to discipleship, and all of that's grounded in the gospel. And we know that in verse 11... We see this little word for, which tells us that all that Paul has been talking about, all that he's been saying in regards to uh, the relationships between older men and younger men and older women and younger women and and every uh, aspect of verses 1 through 10 is grounded in what verses 11 through 15 say. It's it's for, it shows us that the, the call to discipleship is grounded in God's grace. Grounded in God's grace. We know that this grace has come to us in Jesus and through the gospel. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. He said, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but here it is, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. Before the ages began, what God promised in eternity past, He brought about and has manifested, it says, through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the grace of God has come to us in Jesus and through the message of the gospel, through the good news of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. And, 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 you know, sometimes, I, I don't know the background of everyone here, if you've been in church much, or uh, perhaps you've heard sermons about the gospel and about grace, and maybe, maybe this is familiar news to you. But can I, can I just remind us, uh, it's easy for us to think of grace as just a concept that we should understand as Christians. And, and no doubt, it is, it is grounded in believing certain things. Grace is, uh, is, we're instructed in what grace is. That's what we're doing today as we read verses 11 through 15. But the grace of God isn't just an abstract truth. The grace of God is a person. The grace of God is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and Jesus accomplished for us what we could not do for ourselves. He gave himself for us, it says in verse 14. 
to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you, if you look at verses 11 through 14, what 11 through 12 says is there's a twofold purpose to God's grace. It brings salvation to all people and it trains us in, uh, in godly living in essence. Well, verse 14 is kind of the summary. Uh, it restates what, what Paul has, has already said because we see that this grace that's come to us has come through Jesus giving himself for us. And it says twofold. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify a people for himself. So we could say that the gospel does two things. In the gospel, Jesus redeems us from our sin. That it's through the death of Christ on the cross that we're redeemed from our sin, the, the price of our rebellion against God, the judgment that we deserved for going our own way, for placing other things above Him, for neglecting His commands and disobeying His commands, all of that was put on Christ. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Not by being an example for us, but by taking the curse upon Himself. He died in our place. And for our sin, Christ's death redeems us from our sin. This is good news. I don't know when perhaps you first began to consider the gospel, to consider the grace of God. I was 14, and I was invited to church by a number of friends. Had no interest in church. I didn't go to church. My family didn't go to church, but um, <clears throat> I lived down the road from an uh, a family who were believers and went to church and went to school with a few friends who were believers. They all happened to go to the same church, and they kept inviting me. And just a word for us as God's people, I said no a lot of times before I said yes. Um, but eventually, I decided to go, and I heard the good news of the grace of God found in Jesus, that I knew I was a sinner. It didn't take much to convince me of that. I, I, I had a lot of guilt and a lot of shame for the stuff that I had already done, even as a young teenager. <clears throat> I just didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to get rid of my guilt. I didn't know how to get rid of my shame. So I just filled my life with other stuff, thinking that that would satisfy me, thinking that that would fill that hole, fill those voids. Uh, but none of those things ultimately worked. <clears throat> and all, all I remember that day is... is is recognizing that what Jesus did on the cross wasn't just some good example. It wasn't just some uh, inspirational story. But He died in my place. It was for my sin. And if I came to Him, He would free me from the guilt of my sin and the shame of my sin and give me forgiveness and new life in Him. What Titus 2.11 says is that the grace of God appeared, and first and foremost, what the grace of God does is it brings salvation to all people. See, the, the good news of the gospel is good news, not just to some people, but it's good news to all people. But understand that He makes salvation <clears throat> uh, available to all people. It doesn't say that all people are saved. It doesn't say that uh, because Jesus came, there's nothing for us to do. Everybody will figure it out on their own. It doesn't say that we're all headed up a mountain going in the same direction. You know, we'll just get there our different paths. It says that it's in the grace of God that salvation is found. And Jesus has made salvation available to all people. But it's only uh, realized and experienced for those who reach out and grab hold and, and turn from their sin and trust in Christ. So this grace of God that's found in Jesus, it requires a response from us that we would, we would trust in Him. We would turn to Him. 
Because of what Jesus has done on the cross and, and dying for us, there is no person here today, here in our city, in our community, there's no person who's outside the reach of Jesus. There's no one who stands apart from and outside of, unavailable to the, the offer of forgiveness of sins and salvation in Jesus Christ. The grace of God appeared bringing salvation to all people. Have you received that grace? Have you experienced that grace for yourself, having turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus? Maybe you're like me, knowing that there's guilt and shame, knowing there's things that you wish you could change, feeling helpless, feeling powerless, unable to do it on your own. The Bible doesn't say that you can, you can do all things by pulling up your bootstraps and trying harder. The Gospel says that you can, you can experience forgiveness of sins and eternal life through turning to Jesus Christ. The grace of God is found in Jesus Christ. But the grace of God found in Jesus Christ that makes salvation available to all people does a second thing. And that second thing that I want us to see is that the Gospel trains us in godly living. The Gospel trains us in godly living. It says it in two different ways in verse 12 that it trains us to say no to ungodliness and, and unrighteousness to worldly passions. And, and the flip side of that, that's negative. The positive is to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Verse 14 says that it's through Christ giving Himself for us that He purifies a people for His own possession. See, the gospel isn't just meant to be nostalgic. The gospel is meant to change us. My <clears throat> father passed away back in 2013, and uh, recently uh, some family members of mine sent me a box of, uh, of some of his things that had been uh, moved in the initial um, plans of the funeral, and I just hadn't gone through it. And it was a box of old records and cassettes, um, even some eight tracks in there. Uh, and it just brought back memories to me of, riding in the car with my dad and listening to a specific uh, cassette tape or, or listening to him pull out his uh, 8-track player and record player and listen to songs, songs that I just thought were terrible, um, you know, and, and really couldn't stand, but my dad loved them and we listened to them and uh, just some good memories. You know, and, and there's something that's so rich about that that I love, um, but we, we had that box that set in our foyer for uh, a week or two after stubbing our toes on it a few times, we realized we should go through it. And I went through it, and I had a, I had a blast remembering those, those memories with my dad. But you know, that box, I then boxed everything back up, and I put it in my storage room. And it's likely going to sit there for quite a while. And sooner or later, I'll go through it again and have some of those memories again. Maybe I'll uh, find a cassette player somehow and uh, play a cassette um, uh, pull out a record maybe and remember it. Uh, but there's, there's something about those nostalgic things that we enjoy them for a moment, but then, but then we put them away. I think sometimes we treat the gospel like that as Christians. It almost is like a nostalgic memory for us. It's like, oh yeah, you remember that? That was good, what Jesus did for us. And then we put it away. The gospel isn't just about how we enter into the Christian life. It's, it's not the ABC, but it's the A to Z. It encompasses the whole of Christian living, and it's what motivates us. It's what compels us to godly living. A better, perhaps, image of it is that the gospel isn't, shouldn't be just a nostalgic memory for you. It should be what's on, the, uh, you know, on the, the home screen of your phone, the thing that you look at every day and that you behold, that it's, it's part and parcel of how you live 
and that you see it every day and it impacts you. And the danger is if we don't allow the gospel to motivate godly living, we'll fall into two traps. If you think about being on a road, uh, we'll fall into, uh, into one of two ditches. On the one side is the performance-driven ditch. On the other side is the grace-abuser ditch. And these two dangers, one neglects God's grace, thinking that we can do and live the Christian life in our own wisdom, in our own strength. That the way to grow in godly living is to come up with new techniques and, uh, and new, new reading plans and new books to do and, and new things to try out. And there's, there's place for different tools to be used in godly living. Don't, don't mistake me. But it's easy for us to neglect grace and think that our standing before God is based on how well we've been doing. How many times have you had a rough week as a follower of Christ and you've allowed that to shape how you think God views of you when you come to worship Him? How often have you allowed uh, this idea of being performance-driven to think that it's not about what God, that's, that God has done for you that motivates your life? but what you need to do for God. And it's funny how it can be a good motive, right? Like, I need to do more for God. Yes. But if not grounded in what God has first done for you, it will lead you to be discouraged and to be defeated because none of us can live up in our own strength. None of us can perform well enough. But on the other side of it, if, if performance-driven people neglect God's grace, grace abusers presume against God's grace. They think, well, God's gracious. He'll forgive me, right? Godly living? I don't need to say no to myself. Worldly passions? What are worldly passions? That's just what, you know, that's just what those Christians say that make us you know, kill all our fun and all our joy. God's a killjoy. I want to get on living my life my way. And, you know, Jesus loved all of us, right? In John 3.16 in the Bible somewhere, he, he loves us. So I can do what I want, and God will forgive me anyway. That's abusing grace, presuming against grace. We are all sinners. Even as followers of Christ, we struggle in our sin. But when we know the grace of God, we will never excuse our sin. We'll never look at it and think, no big deal. Sweep it under the rug. God will forgive me. And we're broken by our sin. And we're renewed in our desire to obey Him. Grace changes us. It transforms us. What, what Titus 2 verse 12 is saying is that we have a new power. That once we come to Christ, the grace of God, it, it trains us in godly living. It, it empowers us. I like how one translation, the New Living Translation says, that it allows us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And yes, to self-control, upright and godly living. So, so the idea is that once we used to not be able to say no to sin, in Christ we can say no to sin. It doesn't mean that you'll choose to say no to sin tomorrow, but it means that we're free to not sin. It means that we're free to turn away from our old sin. I love Peter. He's kind of a straightforward guy. And in 1 Peter he says that returning to your sin is like a dog. I apologize if I'm about to ruin any lunch. It's like a dog returning to its vomit. See, that, that's, that's what it's like when we go back to sin. We're freed from it. We don't have to go back. In fact, it's insane that we go back. That we've been forgiven and set free from sin and we would choose it again and again. 
It shows us the power of sin which we will experience until this life is over or Jesus returns. But there's a new power at work. A new power in Christ. God's grace that enables us to say no to sin and yes to godly living. See, in justification... The Bible teaches us a big theological word that we've been forgiven. We're we're free from the guilt of sin. Sanctification teaches us that we're free from the power of sin. Not that we will be free from the presence of sin. That's glorification, what one day will be ours in eternity. But now we're free from the overarching, reigning power of sin in our lives so that we have new power to say no to sin. And the gospel doesn't just save us, but it purifies us and it trains us in godliness. And then not only is there a new power, but a new purpose. We see an inward dimension that, we're, uh, that the gospel trains us to, to live self-controlled lives. The idea of self-control isn't... Sometimes we view that concept apart from like biblical terms. Self-control is something that everybody teaches. It's a good habit. It's a good practice, right, to have self-control. Uh, if you uh, have kids, you want them to learn self-control. If you're an adult and that ice cream is in the fridge or in the freezer, you want to have self-control. And I won't tell you how I'm doing on this front if you don't tell me how you're doing. But uh, the gospel does train us to have self-control, that there's this inward dimension of dying to self and, and, and being transformed to center our lives around Christ. But then there's this outward dimension when he says that it trains us to live upright lives. To live upright is this idea of righteousness in relationship to other people. We make life so complicated, I feel like, sometimes, and we think the Christian life is so complicated. When Jesus said, I can sum it up for you in two commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Live upright lives that the way we relate to one another should be transformed by the gospel. And then there's an upward dimension in which godliness teaches us uh, to, uh, to live for God's glory. Godly lives, that God is the aim and the center of our lives. The gospel trains us in godly living. <clears throat> and I think the, way, the best way I know how to say this is we think about how the gospel changes us in our daily life. We have to get the gospel in us. We have to, the best, best way I know how to say it is we have to soak in the gospel. There's an author, <clears throat> Pastor Tim Keller says, we must let the gospel teach us, train us. We must let the gospel argue with us. We must let the, the gospel sink down deeply until it changes our views and our motives. We must be trained and disciplined by the gospel. I love that idea that the gospel has to sink down. Sometimes those dishes are so bad that you have to just let them soak, right? We need to soak in the gospel. How do you soak in the gospel? Let me give you just three kind of um, practical ways that we can do this. Soak in the gospel by reading scripture. Reading scripture to find truths of the gospel. Read a passage like Titus 2, 11 through 15 and say what truths of the gospel are here that God gave us to redeem us and to purify us for himself. Recite the truths of the gospel to yourself on a regular basis. Like I know Daryl preaches to you on Sunday, but you're not going to see the gospel motivate you to godly living unless you start preaching to yourself Monday through Saturday. Allowing the gospel to transform the way you think and the way that you live, your, your motives and your views. 
See, if, if what you think trumps what God's Word says on every turn and you're not allowing God's Word to wrestle and, and, ch- and change you and rub up against you and refine you and renew you, who's really in charge? Are you dictating what you want God's Word to say or allowing God's Word and the Gospel to transform you? And then finally, rehearse the truths of the Gospel in community. So you've got to do it on an individual basis. But as you gather as God's people, both on a Sunday and perhaps in small groups and in other contexts, in the intentionality with which you view one another, allow the gospel to be rehearsed in community. There's a, there's a resource that I would commend to you called The Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. It's a little book uh, that helps with this idea of preaching the gospel to yourself. Um, and I... I I want to actually read uh, his summary of the gospel just to, to encourage us and to, to end, with a, end with this. Here in a moment, you'll take the Lord's Supper and, and reflect on Jesus' death uh, in our place, the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, his body being broken as a sacrifice for us. And in that is the, is the gospel being declared visibly uh, we are reminded of it so that it strengthens us and nourishes us in the, the, the Christian life. And maybe, maybe you're here and maybe you have questions about Christianity and you're not quite sure what you think. Maybe you've wrestled with some of what you've heard about what Christianity teaches, about what the gospel is. I, I just want to read this over us and encourage us with it. Because I don't think really ultimately what it does is just summarize various aspects of God's Word and you'll hear aspects of Scripture quoted in it. But as I read it, I just want us to reflect, to soak, if you will, together on the Gospel, on what God has done for us in Christ. The grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ and that trains us to godly living My God is immense beyond imagination. He measured the entire universe with merely the span of His hand. He's unimaginably awesome in all of His perfections and absolutely righteous and holy and just in all of His ways. He's also unbelievably good and merciful to me, the creator and sustainer of my life. Every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ in my body is a gift from Him. Every legitimate pleasure I experience is a gift from His loving hand. All that I am and all that I have I owe to Him and to His goodness." My life in every way is and will continue to be utterly dependent on Him in whom I live and move and have my being. This wonderful God is the most supremely worthy object of admiration, of honor, and delight in all the universe. He created me with the intention that I might glorify Him by finding my soul's delight in Him and by living joyfully in obedience to Him in all of my ways. God's good purpose in in creating us Yet I could not have failed this great God more miserably than I have. Instead of giving thanks to Him and humbly submitting to His rule over my life, I've rebelled against Him and have actually sought to exalt myself above Him. Going my own way and living according to my own wisdom, I've broken countless times His commands. Thinking myself to be wise, I've shown myself to be a fool. And because of my arrogance, God has every right to damn me to everlasting experience of His terrifying wrath in the lake of fire. So as for myself, apart from Christ, I'm bound by the guilt of my sin and bound by the power of sin, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We won't understand the good news of the gospel unless we understand the bad news of sin. 
Apart from Christ, I'm utterly <clears throat> deserving of eternal punishment in the lake of fire, completely unable to save myself and even make one iota of a contribution to my own salvation. However, what I could not do, God did. And in doing it, He did it all, sending His own Son into the world to die on the cross for my sins and thereby showing the unfathomable love. God loved me so much that He was willing to suffer the loss of His Son and even more amazingly, He was willing to allow His Son to suffer the loss of Him at the cross. Jesus loved me so much that He was willing to lay down His life for me. No one could ever love me more or better than Jesus. On the third day after Jesus' death, God raised Him from the dead, thereby announcing that His death was completely sufficient to atone for every sin that I have or will commit throughout my life. And then God exalted Him to His own right hand, where Christ now reigns from on high, granting salvation and forgiveness to all who call upon Him. Now stick with me. I know I'm reading to you, but I hope you're hearing the, the message of the gospel and soaking in it. Now, when my time came and I placed my faith in Jesus, God instantly granted me a great salvation. He forgave all my sins, not just in the past, but the present as well as in the future. He made me His child, adopting me into His family. He gave me the gift of the Holy Spirit who gives me God's power, pours out God's love within my heart, and tenderly communicates to my spirit that I'm a child of God and an heir of eternal glory of salvation. And saving me, God also freed me from the slavery to any and all sins. I no longer have to sin again, for sin's mastery over me is broken. And in saving time, God also justified me. And being justified through Christ, I have peace with God. That's not just for now, but will endure forever. And in justifying God, God declared me innocent of my sins and pronounced me righteous in His very sight. God has allowed His future and present wrath against me to be completely satisfied by Jesus, who bore it on Himself on the cross. Consequently, God now has only love, compassion, and deepest affection for me. And this love is without any admixture of wrath soever. Listen to me, if you're in Christ, if you've trusted in Him and turned from your sin and, and accounting on God's grace, God always looks upon you and treats you with His gracious favor working all things together for, for our ultimate and eternal good. God's grace abounds to us even in trials. And even when trials come our way, He forces it to do us good in His timing and His plan. And when I sin, God feels no wrath against me in His heart. His heart is filled with nothing but love for you if you are in Christ. Showing you His gracious and forgiving love. And if you don't know Christ, this is His offer to you. No one will love you better or more than Jesus. And He demonstrated it by laying down His life on the cross. <clears throat> I'll close just by reading here in Titus 2, 13-14. After Paul summarizes this gospel, and he shows us that the gospel not only brings salvation, but it trains us in godly living. He says, as we wait... We wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, we have salvation past, accomplished on the cross. Salvation working itself out in the presence through the grace of God, training us in godly living. And salvation in the future when our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, once more returns. And it's that that reminds us 
that it's worth it. It's worth it to follow Christ. It's worth it to suffer for Christ. It's worth it in our trials to trust Christ. It's worth it in every way to pursue Christ because one day He will appear again. And He is our blessed hope. Not like, I hope the Lions win a game this year. Not like, I hope Michigan gets their act together. But a confident expectation of what God is to do for us in Jesus Christ. You can take it to the bank and cash it as secure for you and I. That's the good news of the Gospel. So as we close, the two responses that we have to ask ourselves is, have we experienced God's grace for ourselves? Have you experienced God's grace for yourself? The Bible says if you haven't, that you can confess your sins and believe on Christ, and anyone who calls on Him will be saved. But also as a follower of Christ, are you allowing God's grace to shape your discipleship? Is there sin in your life that you need to confess? Is there a burden that you're bearing that you need to bring to Him? Maybe a discouragement that you're facing? I don't know, it seems like it's been a pretty tough year and a half for all of us. Is there some area of your life, a loss of zeal and passion for God? A loss of or indifference to Jesus' return? How do you need to respond to God's grace today? As we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that God's grace is available to us in Jesus Christ. If you don't know Him, rather than taking the Lord's Supper, call out on Him as Savior today. Receive Him as, as the Lord and Savior of your life. And if you do, as you take those elements today, remember His body broken, His blood shed, and allow that good news of God's grace found in Jesus to compel us into living our lives for His sake, that we might know Him and we might make Him known. Let me pray and we'll transition to the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank You so much for just the opportunity to be gathered together today. What a beautiful day it is. We're reminded that Your mercies are new every morning. God, they're new to us every morning. Your grace is available to us, not because of how we've performed or what we've done, but because of what You've done on our behalf. Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us, to set us free from our sin and to purify us, to make us a people whose lives reflect You in the way that we, we, we walk with uh, self-control, dying to self, and, and we, we look to love others as You have loved us, and we look to glorify You and delight in You in all that we do. God, the Gospel You've given us to change us, to bring us to Yourself and to forever change us, to make us more like You, so that we might bear witness to You and we might enjoy who You are for us. Lord, today I pray that if there's anyone here who's yet to trust in You as their Savior, maybe they've, they've heard about Jesus, they've been asking questions, they've been wrestling with something. Maybe today is the day of salvation, that they see that Christ went to the cross not as an inspiration, as an example, but for them and their place, for their sin. That if they would just turn from their own way, from their own sin and trust in You, that you won't turn any of us away, that you'll take our guilt and our shame and you'll remove our sin as, is the, as far as the east is from the west. And Lord, for every believer here, as we reflect on your gospel today, I pray it wouldn't just be a nostalgic memory to us, but it would be the background of our lives, 
It would change everything about us. Lord, I thank you so much uh, for Arbor Bridge. May you continue working out here what you've accomplished in Christ, God, for the good of Ann Arbor and this broader community and for your glory. We love you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information on our church, visit us online at arborbridgechurch.com. Thank you.